I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. How do you measure quality of life? As scientists and researchers across fields discover new drug therapies or disease prevention in breast cancer as well as other fields, science finds innumerable ways to measure the physical results. But what about the social, behavioral, psychological aspects of cancer care? As importantly, how should medical staff discuss such realities with patients, helping them understand the great benefits, but also how to emotionally and physically manage the challenges that can come with some therapies and preventions, indeed, with extended life? This is just one area of extraordinary impact that Professor Dame Leslie Fallowfield has made in medicine. Dame Leslie is Professor of Psycho-Oncology at Brighton and Sussex Medical School at the University of Sussex, where she is Director of the Sussex Health Outcomes Research and Education in Cancer Group. Dame Leslie's research interests are eclectic and include the measurement of quality of life in clinical trials of cancer therapy, the evaluation of interventions aimed at ameliorating the side effects of treatments, the training of communication skills for healthcare professionals in cancer, and information materials for patients contemplating trial enrollment. She has developed many validated patient-reported outcome measures that are used in many international breast cancer clinical trials, published over 450 papers, many book chapters, and three textbooks. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2016, the same year she was made a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II for services to psycho-oncology. Before my conversation with Professor Dame Leslie Fallowfield, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Professor Dame Leslie Fallowfield. Dame Leslie, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. So let's start uh, at the very top. What is psycho-oncology? Yeah, it sounds a bit sinister, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit, but I'm sure that you're going to. Shower scene um, in psycho. Um, essentially, it's looking at the social, behavioral, psychological aspects of cancer care. Mm. So that embraces a whole range of things. It can be anything from support for patients, um, educational training of healthcare professionals who deal with cancer patients, to actually looking at ways to measure quality of life in big clinical cancer trials, for example. And I wanted to ask you about that and quality of life. It is um, such a prime overlay of so much of your life's work. And for us outsiders, we think of healthcare professionals, you know, in a cliched sense, I, I would say, you know, on focus primarily on physical health. Is the patient sick? Is the patient healthy? Will she live or not? Um, why were you inspired to think and act so seriously in the area of quality of life? And, and to pick up on what you just said a moment ago, how do you measure that? Okay, well, that's quite a big question to unpick. I mean, if we start at the very beginning, mm. um, 
I, uh, I, I used to be actually a visual scientist and I was measuring ways uh, or rather developing ways to measure the integrity of the optic nerve in patients who'd got demyelinating diseases like multiple sclerosis because they started to have all sorts of strange visual problems mm. that clinical tests couldn't pick up. So I developed some ways to actually measure the things that patients were complaining of. So that was where my career was focused. And um, sadly, my very closest friend who uh, used to help me with the school run with the kids, um, uh, she was only 34 and she developed acute myeloid leukemia. And she had one of the first bone marrow transplants um, and sadly died of graft-versus-host disease. Now, when she was in hospital um, uh, suffering, the appalling sort of problems that you get with that, she looked up at me and she said, you know, you're meant to be so clever. Why don't you measure something important? And I said, well, I am measuring things that are important. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, why people do things like this to you without really telling you what could happen? Um, why can't you measure sort of the, the, the benefits of actually doing things like that with so many serious side effects? And she died and um, about two weeks later. And I thought very long and hard about it and uh, read an article by a breast cancer surgeon, in fact, um, saying that he thought the psychological aspects of breast cancer were poorly understood. So I just phoned him up and I said, give me a job. <laughs> to mm. come. And he said, well, you know, you don't know anything about cancer. And I said, so teach me. I yeah. said, I know how to measure difficult things. I know how to measure things that people think you can't measure. And I'll find someone in the world who'll give me a job because I promised my friend. And so um, that really is, is the background. I, 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 I am a scientist. I, I had a degree in experimental psychology and neuroscience. But I've applied all of that work into my psycho-oncology. And uh, certainly measuring difficult things has been a major, major part of that. Well, I don't know how anyone uh, could have withstood the pitch that you gave. Um, I made a promise to my friend, um, and obviously uh, that person didn't uh, resist your pitch. It's also just so striking and sad to hear that, so that wasn't even being considered, measured at that point as your friend was going through her cancer treatment. Well, well, I guess sort of, I mean, there's several ways of looking at this, isn't there? I mean, obviously, when people have life-threatening disease, many people, not just the healthcare professionals, families as well, are so focused on survival. Mm. But of course, you know, survival at any cost isn't always very worthwhile. We need to think about the quality of survival. And that's actually, you know, relevant, as relevant now as it was then. Certainly in, and we're talking about 1984, I'm very old, don't forget. Um, no. 
1984, if you looked, did a literature search then, you'd probably come up with about two or three papers that actually mentioned phrases like quality of life. Hmm. And so it's been a long, hard road to hoe, actually, to actually get to the stage now where people do accept that it is important. I mean, one of the things that uh, has happened over the last um well, a couple of decades, really, I think I'd say, is that we've seen, because of our improved understanding of the molecular biology that underpins a lot of the development of, of, of cancers, we've seen some incredible therapeutic advances in new and different treatments. That actually means that many patients have got a realistic um, prospect of cure, Mm. or living much longer with their disease and hopefully living well. And a lot of that, uh, these advances have been because of the fantastic researchers that are funded by BCRF. So thanks to all the um, you know people who make donations because they really have made a difference. But if we come back to sort of the, um, if you like, quality of survival. Yes. Nothing actually comes without cost. And I don't mean financial cost. I mean toxicities and impact, therefore, on activities of daily living that make life worthwhile. So when we get um, a new treatment that and it, often it's baby steps in terms of improvements, you know, um, but over the years, this builds up. If you've got a new drug or a new procedure that can add a few extra months or extra years of, of, of life. It's so important to be absolutely clear about what the toxicities and downsides are. Not because we then stop actually giving people those beneficial and efficacious treatments, but so that we can work out what sorts of ameliorative interventions or supportive things we can put in place up front to help patients cope with the side effects. So if you think about it, I mean, um, if we look at metastatic breast cancer, for example. Yes. And we've seen some big changes there with sometimes people living with metastatic disease for many years. But a lot of these um, patients, of course, have other lives other roles and responsibilities that they want to fulfill. They wish to pick up the grandchildren from school so that their daughter can go back to work, or maybe they want to look after a, a demented spouse or, 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 or husband or, uh, sorry, or, or, or mother or father, um, or just, you know, play tennis and walk the dog. And if you've got, for example, horrible chronic diarrhea or fatigue, you're not going to be able to do any of those things. So the question becomes, well, do I want to live in this housebound state because of the side effects of treatment? Or do I want to take another treatment which might not extend my life quite as long, but would at least allow me the prospect of doing the things that make my life worthwhile? So that's why we're very focused now on the quality of survival. Um, we certainly are doing great things about the quantity of life, mm. but we've really got to do a lot more about the the quality of life. Who are those conversations 
hardest for? I mean, I hear you talking about balance and uh, balancing the toxicity versus quality and what you just said, the quantity versus the quality. Are those toughest for the patient? Are those toughest for the family? And what about the medical profession? How skilled or not skilled, generally speaking, do you, do you find them at that? Oh, well, that's a, that's a question because we're all different, aren't we? Mm-hmm. You know, um, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot now about shared decision making so that, uh, you know, no decisions about me without me, that mm-hmm. patients and their families need to be an integral part of the decision making about what to do next. And that's, of course, easier said than done, really, because First of all, I mean, there's several things. First of all, there's the complexity of information giving about things. And uh, a lot of treatments, a lot of tests and everything are you need an undergraduate degree in, I don't know, biology to understand some of it. So putting um, complex um, information in front of a family and, and, and patient um, in understandable terms, without being patronising, of course, is 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 a hard thing to do. And I think a lot of healthcare professionals um, really severely underestimate the um, literacy and numeracy levels of most of the general population. Even people who are graduates, um, you know, have struggle with probabilities and possibilities. Um, and I think so it, it, that in itself is difficult enough. But then you have to, I think, sort of layer into this problem in terms of communicating and having a genuine two-way exchange. The fact that healthcare professionals, not because they are bad people, they are good people <laughs> very often, yes. but they they tend to talk up for all sorts of reasons, the benefits, they're very good at talking about the benefits of treatments, less sort of competent and confident sometimes about talking about the downsides. Now, this is sometimes because you want to, um, it's a hackneyed phrase, but you want to give patients hope, keep mm. them optimistic. And that 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 is a, on one level a good thing. But I think sometimes that the... Um, the healthcare professionals themselves start to want to believe in the same sorts of miracles as do their patients. And then you've mm. got an interesting exchange that goes on. So when you've got a, a, a deeply anxious patient, perhaps with their relatives, desperate for positive news, don't, healthcare professionals are human beings too. They want to feed into that. They want to make that better. And so sometimes they over-egg the upside of things and underplay the downside of things. Um, And I can see so easily how that happens. Um, It's really hard to be um, honest with people about therapeutic benefits versus the harms. So you have just made clear for me, I came across uh, one of your quotes uh, that where you stated that oncologists need to be aware of their own tolerance of uncertainty before discussing possible treatments or risks. And I just, I caught up on that phrase, tolerance of uncertainty. Um, but I think you just described what you mean, didn't you? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe I could sort of just explain it a little more in terms Please. of some um, research that actually the BCRF funded us to do, um, which was absolutely fascinating. And in breast cancer, um, there's a lot of effort now to um, de-escalate treatment. And by that, that means not give patients treatments that really have little prospect of adding anything to, you know, cure or, or long-term survival. And we've, we know from all sorts of different sort of studies that um, not all women with early breast cancer need or should indeed even have chemotherapy, that certain types of breast cancer are, are treated well enough by surgery, radiotherapy and endocrine treatment, hormone treatments. But of course, it's quite difficult to um, uh, explain to a patient that we don't always need to give you all the things that they're expecting will um, perhaps sort of, you know, give them a better outcome. And so there are these wonderful new tests called gene expression profiling tests, yes. which basically can help determine whether or not a patient is at low risk of um, the cancer recurring intermediate or high risk. And so obviously the patients at high risk, no question about it, they really should be offered chemo. But there's a bigger question about the intermediate and low risk patients who probably are, you know, happier, better off not having the chemotherapy for no benefit. But if you've got a very anxious patient who has got a high intolerance of uncertainty, and the doctor talking to her has a high intolerance of uncertainty themselves. And let's say the score is intermediate or just on the cusp of being high. There's no way that patient leaves the clinic without actually a prescription for chemotherapy. Because that's certain that we know we know it's going to happen there. Is that I mean, is that? Well, absolutely. It's, yep. it's, it's got nothing to do with the characteristics of the tumour and the results of the test. It's got everything to do with the psychological disposition of the of patient. both parties. The doctor talking to her. Fascinating. So we ran all these courses um, uh, where we, we developed lots of educational materials and we found that we could improve the doctor's competence and self-confidence when they were talking with patients about, you know, different sorts of uh, gene expression, risk of recurrence scores um, with different types of patients. So that was a really interesting uh, sort of study to do, because uh, unless you give doctors some awareness of how um, these sorts of things, their own sorts of personality types, attitudes leak into the com conversation. They don't understand why sometimes patients make perhaps rather irrational decisions. That is such an interesting thing to hear as a, you know, as an outsider, because we think about that all the time in any conversation with a, a spouse, family at work, that one's own psychology, situation, circumstances will, you know, learned experience, lived experience will inevitably f drive or, or influence, inform 
any conversation that we have with someone, particularly, I would think the more difficult the topic, the more those lived experiences and behaviors must, must kind of form one's own uh, participation. But as a layperson, speaking for myself, we don't think about that from a medical (laughs) professional. We think that of course they've, uh, you know, they're, they're in control of all of the their their faculties uh, medically, psychologically, emotionally, um, and and what a what a fascinating way to 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 view it and and an important contribution. Well, I think one of the problems, of course, is that um, medicine is not the exact science that we would like it to be. Indeed, and, um, and people don't like ambiguity particularly where you've got life threat involved. They, they really want a, a clear direction that this will help, this will not. And, you know, it's just not quite as clear cut as that. And um, I think that's where the problem comes. No, often life is not quite as clear cut as that, unfortunately, isn't that? Uh, or it's the reality. Uh, it is, uh, that's, that's what it is. Um, I'd like to talk about now, now. One of the things it seems that you are trying to do in terms of helping the medical profession, helping healthcare understand those conversations, is really scale that ability. Because as amazing as you might be, as incredible things as you might do, I'm willing to bet that you can only be in one place at one time. You you haven't quite figured out how to how to clone yourself, and 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 so um, the trusting educational program that you are working on. Could you tell me about that? What is it? Why does it, uh, what does it consist of? Why is it important? And, and if you could tie it in as well, because I believe, I don't know that it's solely around, but I believe it's around the, the idea of discussing genetic testing results. Um, so tell me please about, about trusting. Okay, so so trusting is a is another program that uh, educational program that we're doing with uh, BCRF backing, um, uh, which I'm so grateful for. Um, what we did last, we spent a lot of time talking with women who are at high genetic risk of breast cancer. Um, these uh, and as 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 you're well aware, if you've got the BRCA gene one or two um, yeah. gene mutation you have a predisposition towards uh, breast cancer, but other cancers as well, ovarian cancer and males in the family, um, prostate cancer. So we were concerned about um, particularly, if you like, the celebrity effect of um, uh, well-known sort of individuals deciding to have prophylactic mastectomies um, because they carried the BRCA gene and uh, lots of young women becoming very, very concerned about their risk because someone in the family had had um, uh, cancer. Now, talking again with people who have perhaps seen a loved one or a family member um, uh, die of, of breast or ovarian or, or prostate cancer, you can understand why they don't want that to happen to them or other family members. So we spent a long time talking with families at risk 
who'd had different sorts of procedures or not. We talked with all the different sorts of healthcare professionals who are involved in this um, scene, the surgeons, the oncologists, the genetics counsellors, the geneticists. And we were well aware of the fact that, again, um, the sorts of things that people think will help patients make and families make wise decisions are not always really um, spot on. So we develop some materials and we are running courses and programs for um, the healthcare professionals who may have to have conversations with families uh, to try and enhance their skills. So we, it, because of all the interviews we did with families, we created our own family with some really tricky and interesting sort of problems that weren't exactly straightforward. And we included a deeply anxious young woman who had been tested but wasn't at risk but wanted to do anything to get both of her breasts removed. And the program consists of lots of um, different videos with lots of exercises and um, prior to doing the course, whoever it is, the genetics counsellor, the surgeon or the primary care physician, whoever it may be, they face to camera have the patients that we will see in all our video vignettes asking them questions about their risk and whether that what they should have done about it and who in the family should be tested. The um, participants do our course with all the different sort of exercises, lots of group activities. And then prior to sort of leaving, they have these um, patients again on screen asking them uh, the same uh, questions. Then independent coders rate the performance um, for knowledge um, and way in which uh, the healthcare professionals impart information before and after the course. And when and if we see that this makes a difference, like our previous uh, educational programs have, we will then train facilitators all over the world to actually use the same materials. It is such a difficult area to think about and hear about because it also, to me, and please, you correct me if I'm misinterpreting, it goes back to those questions of uncertainty and ambiguity that you were talking about before. And I, you, you can't imagine, I can't imagine the, um, the, the tension and the stress that a person feels knowing that the, the BRCA gene is in the family, knowing that something may have happened with a loved one, and then trying to reconcile within herself the, the various choices and where to fall on, on that scale. Um, and, and, you know, having those conversations in a thoughtful, constructive way has to be central to helping a patient think through that uncertainty. Absolutely. And uh, I think one of the things that's probably more of a problem in um, the US than it is in other parts uh, of Europe is the direct consumer sort of marketing of mm. uh, genetic testing. And you know, I'm not certain that the, you know, what on earth a person does in such an uncontrolled way with the results that may come from that. Um, so we, we need to do a bit more, I think, in, in helping patients and families make informed 
decisions about what they ought to do. Um, and also to one of the things is that uh, I think, you know, I always say this and it's true with it. If you've got breast cancer and if you're at risk of breast cancer, mm. breast cancer is an emotional emergency. It is not a medical emo- emergency. And that means that you need to calm down, take a deep breath, take time to make a wise choice. It's not a medical emergency. You know, having something done next week is not as important as making a wise choice in a month's time. Hmm. Yeah, the the, uh, the stress and, and pressure of, of time does, it, it can overwhelm and it can can feel overwhelming. Dame Leslie, I, I wanted though to close, I want to ask you about uh, another quote of yours that I saw that had left me thinking, um, and it's not directly related to, uh, certainly not directly, it's not directly related to uh, what we've been discussing, but um, a challenging personal area of thought as well, um, and that's death. Um, you, you, one quote of yours that seemed particularly profound uh, to me, which of course is saying something given the other things that you say, uh, was, although grieving the loss of loved ones can be a difficult process, some people do speak about their loved one's death as having been a positive experience. We need to, demis- we need to demystify death and talk about it more. Now, most of us wouldn't think of a loved one's death as ever possibly being a positive experience. Um, you know, we are having this conversation about uh, finding a cure, about extending high quality of life for as long as possible, but death is part of life. Uh, how is it ever possible for it to be a positive experience? It can be a positive experience if, in fact, one has gone beyond the, I don't know, dreams, the, 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 the desire for a miracle to happen and for it not to be something that somebody's facing. When there is a, a, an acceptance that death is going to happen, um, that allows people to move on in positive ways and talk about real things that matter. I remember sort of uh, many, many years ago when I first started working in this area, we still had a situation where doctors would not always be honest with patients or families about the fact that they were dying. And everybody sort of um, got involved in this myth, um, this sort of um, pretense that something, um, you know, else was going to happen. And it meant that people didn't talk about real things. They didn't laugh and cry together. And I was very struck about um, when I used to do work in hospices, for example, that the families who actually faced the reality of death, sure, they cried and looked upset with each other, but they laughed a lot. They still actually, um, uh, I don't know, sort of talked about realizable dreams and, mm. and prospects Whereas those who actually um, just were in complete denial about it, they knew they were dying, really, but they didn't have the same sorts of of important conversations with each other. So um, 
you know, in our grandmother's days, death really was part of life. Very few children, my great grandmother certainly lived beyond five years. Many died in infancy. Infectious diseases um, killed lots of people. Um, death was more of a, a day to day thing and people talked about it. And we've now got into a situation where, um, you know, no one talks about it. And then the patient becomes almost like a talisman for everyone else. As long as they can actually not talk about it, this person won't die. And um, we have to talk about it more. And we've we've been running lots of programs until COVID, of course, came along, um, where we were... um, we, we, we had a program run with the Welcome Foundation called um, the Departure Lounge. And it, it, we opened up in shopping centers and it looked just like a travel agency. And you went in and there were departure boards and luggage and everything. And it, was an op- it wasn't obviously a, a travel agency. It was somewhere that people of all ages could come and just talk about death experiences. And we had some extraordinary experiences ourselves, actually looking at what families had always wanted to talk about, but were denied. The difficult conversations, the conversations uh, talk about uncertainty uh, and, and maybe maybe not ambiguity so much. It's not so ambiguous, but uh, it certainly leads to uncertainty. Um, Dame Leslie, thank you. Thank you for your conversation. Thank you for the work that you have spent a career on for uh, patients and doctors and uh, the concept of quality of life. Thank you. Thank you, you, Chris. And and thank you, everybody who may listen to this for, you know, all your donations that allows all this wonderful research to go on, not just mine and my team, but everybody else who's funded by BCRA. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Professor Dame Leslie Fallowfield. My thanks to Dame Leslie for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.